0: and welcome to Two IPs in a Pod, a podcast on intellectual property from the Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys. My name is Lee Davis, the Chief Executive of SEPA, and through this series of podcasts, I'm going to invite SEPA members and others from across the world of IP, including inventors, innovators, and creative people, to share their stories with me. I am joined in this adventure by my regular co-host, SEPA Council Member and Honorary Secretary, Willem Roberts. We are the Two IPs in a Pod. Well, Guillaume, I made it. It was a bit touch and go. I dashed here from jury service, but I got here in time to uh, to record this, which is good. You're looking tired. I'm absolutely exhausted. I never knew that. I can't say too much about jury service, obviously, but um, I, can, I can talk about it in general terms. And I never knew being attentive for that many hours in a day listening to people talk about kind of law and evidence and stuff was so draining. I tell you, it's your civic duty. You learn fairly early on how important it is. You know, you're really deciding people's futures. It's an enormous task. I think it's been magnified by the COVID-19 stuff because we're having to do all sorts of things that obviously are out of the ordinary. Like every time a witness comes in or out of court, things get sterilised. If there's a point of law and we all have to get up and leave the court and come back in, things get sterilized. So that means there's a lot of waiting around time. So lots of delays in the the proceedings. The whole courtroom has been reconfigured to maintain social distancing, which means the jury isn't where it normally is. And the witness box is in a different place. And we can't necessarily see the defendant and stuff like that. The pandemic's put a whole different color on jury proceedings. And I reckon there's a blog post in this somewhere after it's all done. So I'll, um, I'll get my thinking cap on and maybe write up the experience.
1: So you've learned to pay attention, Lee, is what I got from all that. Yeah, yeah,
0: I know. I I was going to say it's just like one very, very long council meeting, but I recognise that I don't pay attention during those. So maybe it's not. Uh, We never noticed. We we never (laughs) never knew that. (laughs) I do this thing where I do a little uh, Zoom video of myself and just keep the Zoom video playing back-to-back at council meetings and you don't know I'm not there. You do go very still, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I do have this zoom thing where it just sends it sends me into some kind of catatonic state, and I just. Uh,
1: well, that's not working. Bear in mind that's really not working. <laughs> yeah, on that, that a, doesn't, on work, an doesn't Audio
0: podcast doesn't really work for a podcast. <laughs> does it? What, what, what about you? You've been doing anything really interesting?
1: I have decided to go waterproof for winter. Uh, what? 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 Well, I'm just looking at everywhere. I love going out and it's getting more and more difficult and unpleasant being indoors in places. So I've just engaged in buying a whole bunch of waterproof jackets and trousers and shoes and everything. And then jumping huge queues to sit inside by sitting outside where there's no queues to sit. And getting oh, I thought you are going to away.
0: spray yourself with WD-40 or some other repellent. That's not new. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that how you maintain this air of slipperiness? Let's move on. <clears throat> Shall we move on. It's uh, we've got quite an international feel to two IPs today, uh, which is why actually we're recording this in the early evening in the UK, so that we can accommodate our guest. It's a great pleasure to welcome Christopher Palermo to the pod. Chris, how
2: are you? Very well, thank you. A delight to be with both of you. Well, you you think that now that might change <laughs> as the show goes on. I've known g- Gwillem for so long that I have no doubt it will be a wonderful half hour together. I love your faith. I love that. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You and I promised, Willem, that we wouldn't talk about much to do with the COVID world, but it would be unfair to have Chris on and not touch base stateside and see how things are over there. Chris, I don't know if you are following the state of play in the UK at the moment, but we seem to be on a upwards sort of trend in terms of hospitalisation and so on. And we've just got this three tier local lockdown thing going on where depending on where you are in the country, you can be under different restrictions. So we're heading back into a dark place again. How's
2: things over there? I do follow it. it. That's a shame. As Gwilym knows, I'm a veteran of some perhaps 20 visits to the UK, and I really miss it. I usually pop over once or twice a year, and the uh, continued inability to travel and see friends and uh, enjoy the country has is, is really been uh, dismaying this year, frankly. Uh, here in California, we really never have opened up. The lockdown is pretty significant. Restaurants are open for indoor dining at 25% capacity, but that's about the only bright spot. And there's sort of a national debate going on about, uh, you know, how we should open up, uh, how effective masks are, and all these sorts of things. So uh, our office is closed, Uh, pop in a a day, a week or so, just to have a change of scenery. But by and large, uh, pretty well locked down. I think the bright spot for us here in Northern California is we finally have blue skies and fresh air. Uh, we had uh, wildfires, as you may have heard, for some period of time. It was almost three solid weeks of just dense smoke um, wow. all over the Bay Area, and it was really unpleasant. So we're glad to be through that.
0: Well, we're, we're, of course, heading into winter. We um we started this thing back in March with ridiculously unseasonal tropical weather so we, we had a mini heat wave in april and may time and it felt manageable but heading into another wave in um, in winter time is going to be difficult for us i think
1: unless you go waterproof for winter the new concept not wd-40 just a coat and a waterproof pair of trousers that's what you need before we crack on and talk about
0: some really interesting IP stuff, which Gwilym will lead on because he's the IP expert and I'm just the um, innocent bystander in the world of IP. Many of our listeners will know who you are because they'd have had some kind of engagement with you through work in the in the States or your work over here. But we do have an audience that includes SIPA student members and uh, our associate members. And of course, we're trying to reach out to the non-professionals, the people who use the IP system. So do you fancy telling us a wee bit about yourself and how you got to where you are now?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I'm a California native. In fact, Silicon Valley native. I had the the good fortune to grow up in the Bay Area right at the period when high tech was really uh, on the rise. In fact, I learned computer programming at the uh, ripe age of 14 in primary school, one of the first computer science courses uh, at that level anywhere in the country. That was in 1978. I think it was Fortran and then moved on to BASIC and Pascal later. Well, I was in university. I had a couple of summer positions doing programming, and that really cemented my interest in uh, technology as a career field. But I was also active in the arts and in communications. I was in drama club, and uh, my university major actually was film and television production. Uh, So sort of a hybrid educational background. And unbeknownst to me at the time, it was really ideally suited to a career in IP law because it was a preparation to sort of bridge the fields of technology and communications, which are so important to us as patent attorneys. In terms of uh, professional work, I'm now at about 30 years of IP practice. I started as a litigator. You know, in the U.S., we have very active litigation practice, and many young attorneys begin their careers in, in the litigation field. So I did five years of patent litigation. I also worked two years in-house at a software company. And in fact, a highlight of my career came in the, the late 1990s when I was interviewed for that position by the legendary Steve Jobs, passed that interview, and became associate general counsel at Next Software which was his uh, company at the time. That was a truly heady period for me. Did Steve interview you? He did. He did. It was uh, the, the fifth or sixth interview that I had. It was the last interview before I received the offer. At that time, the company was about 300 people, and he interviewed everyone at all levels. What can, What's your abiding memory? What was he like? <laughs> he was energizing, dynamic, inspiring, at times coarse and rough, but he just had very, very high standards. And I'm really glad to have uh, had that experience of working for someone who was you know, alternately demanding and yet um, inspiring and, and really positive and human. Uh, there's some stories I could go into where he you know, lent resources to help in times of need. Um, and uh, he, he really was an extraordinary person and uh, I miss him, frankly. Did you know back then how big things were going to be? Was there um, an indication
0: of just what was coming? No,
2: no, not at all. In fact, at the time, uh, Next was struggling as a company, trying to reinvent itself from a hardware maker. It had had started off making the Cube-like Next computer, which really was not a commercial success. It was expensive, very high performance, and it attracted some university customers and government customers, but it, it was never really a consumer machine. And so it was a period, I think, for Steve to explore new ideas, retrench, look at different trends in the industry, and perhaps a really good recharge period for what Apple would later become. But at the time, Apple's share price was around $3. It was becoming a a penny stock. It had a very, very small sector of the personal computer market. It did not have the iPod. It did not have the iPad. It didn't have watches, none of that. It was just a computer maker. And so when Apple eventually bought Next, which was in late 1997, I was really ambivalent about whether to become an Apple employee. I eventually did, although it was only for a short period of time because the company was struggling and everyone thought it was going to fail. So could not have predicted it, but uh, a great experience nonetheless. That's a fantastic story to tell, isn't it? That period was followed by 25 years in private law firm practice. I've worked in Washington, DC, Los Angeles, and uh, Silicon Valley, and i've I've been uh, been here sort of home for the last uh, twenty to twenty two years and really enjoy working in the area. Uh, I think the valley's changing, uh, not just because of COVID, but because of the fourth Industrial Revolution, artificial intelligence, super high speed networking or just making a location in Silicon Valley. I think, less critical for companies. And and that might be a trend worth talking about, but it's still a fabulous place to work.
1: I first got to know you through connections in Silicon Valley. And one of the things that fascinates us over here, and I think the whole world actually is the the, the Silicon Valley story. I mean, we've had lots of inventors on this uh, podcast from the UK who are trying to make it in the environment we have in the UK, which is kind of innovation friendly, but not massively sophisticated in terms of kind of linking up investment and innovation and everything else. Silicon Valley is absolutely the benchmark for the, for the whole world in terms of how to achieve this. And be interested in your thinking about
2: what is what's special? What what do we need to, apart from the weather, which obviously we massively struggle with? What else do we need? I don't think you can underestimate the value of climate. I mean people people here we've had it. <laughs> it's, it's done. It's over. I know, I know. No, <laughs> it, it will be interesting to see uh, how much that really matters because uh, California is struggling right now under uh, you know incredibly high costs of living, very high tax rates, um, heavy government regulation. And the past six months have really seen an exodus from the area. Rents in San Francisco are down something like 24%. San Francisco suffered a Loss in sales tax revenue of 43% over the past six months, at just a massive decline. Uh, that's unsustainable for a city of that size. So people are leaving. And the question is, you know, what where are they going and 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 what do you really need to sustain innovation and the growth of these companies? But putting those extraordinary conditions aside, I think the main success factors have been the proximity of major universities. Remember, we sort of have a triangle. Uh, formed by Stanford on the West, Berkeley on the East, uh, Santa Clara, San Jose State on the South. And so we have a continued influx of university students bringing new ideas from all over the world and having ambition, uh, perhaps leaving countries overseas where there's less economic freedom and less entrepreneurship, coming here, having an awakening and um, really wanting to achieve something. So the university presence is incredibly important central London obviously has that as well. And, you know, no shortage of very bright students around the UK, Cambridge, Oxford, all contribute. Uh, There's that. And then uh, all of the money is here and um, has sort of recycled Sandhill road is just lined with venture capitalists. So it's efficient to go seek money. You can uh, you can hold pitches in a confined geographical area uh, one after the other until you find your funding source. So it's, it's sort of wealthy people wanting to live here for the climate and having the capital available, the university, the constant development of new ideas, all of those contribute.
1: And none of this was planned. Is that right? I mean, it's just, it's this completely organic
2: story, isn't it? It is. It can, The roots can be traced back to Hewlett-Packard in the immediate post-war period when they set up their business building oscilloscopes in Palo Alto. And then uh, the next major story was Fairchild Semiconductor when the transistor was invented uh, in Sunnyvale in the 1960s. And it was really those two companies that formed the core, along with, you know, really an incredibly visionary professor of engineering, Donald Terman at Stanford, who taught generations, several generations of engineering leaders and uh, encouraged them to go into industry and to start companies, worry less about joining a large company for security, and to take risks by starting their own. So we have a culture of risk taking and and resistance to rejection. You know, entrepreneurship successfully requires you to become comfortable with rejection and to overcome it.
1: That's something I've heard a lot actually. That you know, in uh, compared to other cultures, possibly including the British one, where you get pushed back once and you kind of it takes you decades to recover from the horror. <laughs>
2: Not true here. Not true here. It's just, uh, I mean, there's some ideas that will not gain traction, and they do eventually go away. But people with disruptive ideas, I suppose we say now, uh, will not be held down and will continue pressing them. The thing that you mentioned there about the access to funding,
1: for me, seems to be the magic ingredient that loads of places can't quite get right. But again, from what you're saying, again, it's not it's not driven by any sort of regulatory kind of concept, and it's not even that structured. It really is just, you say know, the proximity and the openness to, to the pitch almost, to, the, to that initial conversation.
2: Yes, that's changing with COVID. In fact, I think one of the things that made Silicon Valley self-sustaining was the ability to have uh, in-person mixing and random connections at conferences here, there's been a long tradition of relatively open conferences in which the free invited guests are all the funding sources and the people who pay a modest fee to attend are the entrepreneurs who want to pitch ideas. Uh, Those conferences would be held three, four, five times a year. So there's a constant interchange of ideas and, and random connections happening. That's a real challenge now. And my sense is that Personal connections, who you know and who you can contact, have become incredibly important now that we can't have those in-person meetings and random connections. It translates to the patent attorney business as well or the intellectual property law business as well. It's incredibly important today, in my opinion, to stay in touch with clients by uh, voice and by face. So not just by email, but picking up the phone, holding a video call, to stay in front of people. Um, because people do want the human connection. And and if we can't do it in person, we have to find other ways.
1: That's a massive challenge. Yeah. Across the board at the moment. I I have a little game I play with people, which is how many new friends have you made in lockdown? Um, uh, And it's, it's, it's difficult to point to that many a couple of a couple of people said well i never make new friends so i don't (laughs) don't, don't have any friends in real life (laughs) (laughs) but it's you know making uh, i have i'm I'm pleased to say i have made a couple of new friends but it's been by doing weird things like we did an online gig and we ended up sort of dealing with the sound guy and he's a great bloke and that's how that became kind of a a link it's it's just so tricky at the moment and i think you're right that well solving that problem is going to be an interesting one
2: it is um I, I may have to do things like you know, all buy massive display monitors so we we somehow feel that we're more face-to-face with someone yeah. rather than looking at looking at a little laptop. Oh, it's, um, it's, I mean, it's interesting what uh, a
0: revelation, things like this have been for our space, the IP world. Uh, Gwilym and I were doing a little bit of work early on in this, just asking for some thoughts around inventive things that people were doing. And n- naming no names or anything like that, one of the first things we got is, that we're using video conferencing software to speak
2: to our clients. And it was like, <laughs> Never <laughs> <laughs> no, that, uh-huh. that's a Lee, that's an interesting comment because my experience had been in patent attorney work, the in-person inventor sort of classic patent disclosure meeting was really fading away by early 2018. And in the first half of 2019, all the way through the end, it really, really began to end. And I think in by late 2019, I was holding all meetings with inventors by video. So we didn't need covid to do that it was a trend coming anyway mm. it's just sort of the way the world is beginning to work now but um it certainly has changed um you know how the people who who wanted to work in offices and uh, who are more social have had to work
1: I'm a big fan of virtual reality and I just wish that the technology and the environment was as far developed as it, it, it could be i attended with a colleague from the states actually we both met up in a virtual reality film launch we managed to find out each other's avatars and stand by the popcorn machine at the back of a virtual reality cinema watching a genuinely awful film and the the principle was amazing because you could wander around you could you could theoretically go to other people but every time you did it, it turned out that there's a 9 year old kid who'd abuse you so there's a few issues at the moment with the, both the technology the platform and everything else i think that's quite exciting but anyway that's for another discussion but we um, um, we
0: we've just done super congress of course and early early days we were thinking about should we have a second life type
1: version of it that, that terrifies me it's weird. It was really weird, you know, floating around. Anyway, sorry, Chris, so the other the other thing we wanted to make sure we got, uh, we touched on today is basically a bit of a kind of a, a quick update on the IP scene out there. For for a long time, the rest of the world's followed what happens in the US in relation to IP. I suppose you got any hot topics you want to chuck at us about what we should be watching out for what's coming next.
2: Artificial intelligence and machine learning continue to be a major area of um, investment and development crossing over into almost all industrial areas. So we're seeing lots of patenting activity there. In terms of interacting with the USPTO, the situation on eligibility has definitely hardened in the past year. And we're now seeing large sectors of technical development that are effectively excluded subject matter the approach won't be foreign to those with experience in the EPO. And I think we've reached a point of effective harmonization now in terms of uh, how subject matter is treated. So there's that.
1: Oh, could I just jump in there? Sorry, with apologies to Lee for going all patent techie again, but um, as usual. So, I mean, is it roughly
2: speaking, you're looking, we're looking for a technical effect these days? Is that? Indeed. Indeed. Yes. And and what that means in terms of what is an industrial art and what is a technology, the USPTO's position in certain sectors has definitely hardened. Uh, advertising technology, for example, payment systems, uh, financial analysis, even if there's um, incredibly hard maths and data transformations going on, the, these are just inc- very difficult areas to patent.
1: Mapping that to AI. So, if it's going to remain difficult to basically get a patent for the kind of the algorithms under the AI, is that, is that a similar sort of story?
2: Great question. I usually handle two distinct categories of AI inventions. The first is truly uh, new algorithms in terms of statistical mathematics about how different uh, features in the data are being combined and analyzed. I call those sort of pure AI inventions sure. uh, in which the core the core calculations are different. We, we see some of those, but they're uncommon. You know, the, the human tendency is to use established tools and reuse them if they work. And there's excellent open source software available now for implementing neural networks and linear classifiers and things of this sort. So lots of people simply reuse that existing technology and then just tweak the parameters a little bit. So that first category of AI invention is relatively uncommon. The more common category that I see involves human discovery of the features in data that are most predictive of an outcome. So it's feature selection. You can have uh, a data set of 2 million records that has 160 columns each column being a different attribute of the data. And the data science uh, innovation is determining which are the top 10 features that are most predictive of the outcome, and then programming a system to use only those features for efficiency and scale. So uh, I've done a number of patent applications in which the selection of the features, the identification of the features actually is the basis of the innovation, and they appear in the claim.
1: So there, yeah, there is reasonably kind of hard patenting available still in relation to AI by the sound of it. Yes, yes. Good, good. I, I also was just hearing about there's something going on at the Supreme Court at the moment. They're, they're suing the USPTO for something again?
2: Two major cases before the Supreme Court this term. Uh, the first is a copyright case. We don't get those very often. It's uh, Google versus Oracle. The, <laughs> in this, yeah, two heavyweights. A few dollars at stake in that case. <laughs> yeah. And the the issue in that case is whether application programming interfaces as defined in computer source code represent enough creative authorship to qualify for us copyright protection. The specific problem was that um, sun developed the Java language, Oracle bought sun, and it became the owner of Java. Uh, Java defines a number of APIs that programmers can call to accomplish certain functions. Google allegedly copied all of the Java APIs and did its own implementation on the back end of what those functions would execute. And Oracle is contending that the interface definitions of the Java APIs are copyrightable subject matter. It's gone up to the Supreme Court. It was argued just last week, I believe 7th of October or 8th, and there should be a decision by early spring. The second uh, major case is, is more of a constitutional Uh, Question: It involves the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, the PTAB, and the manner in which Congress uh, defined how PTAB administrative judges should be appointed and confirmed. In that case, the party that lost invalidity proceedings before the PTAB is contending that all of the PTAB judges on its case, and by implication, the entire panel of the PTAB, have been appointed in an unconstitutional manner. To go deep in the weeds, the contention is that the, the judges are quote-unquote senior officers under the Constitution, and therefore they must be appoint- uh, uh, nominated by the President and approved by the Senate with advice and consent of the Senate. However, the uh, Congress when it enacted the PTAB statute allowed for a different method of appointment that doesn't involve Senate confirmation. So the losing party there is contending that that's wrong, that these actually are senior officers, they have to have Senate confirmation, it never happened, so all of the appointments are invalid, and the PTAB can't do anything. So if they prevail, hundreds if not thousands of PTAB decisions will be in doubt, and the the ongoing viability of that panel will be uh, seriously affected if not if not eliminated.
1: And I was hearing that it was kind of being presented when I, it was explained to me as a kind of almost a pro patent versus anti patent kind of debate, depending on which way the outcome goes. I mean, if it goes the way I guess the claimants are going, the plaintiffs are going about knocking out the, the PTAB. What, what are the ramifications for the USPTO there?
2: I think you're right. Uh, the PTAB has been widely viewed as as anti patent. The vast majority of its decisions have been to invalidate claims. So that sort of corrective function, if you will, will will no longer be available. And um, if it goes away, invalidity cases will have to be brought in the federal courts, which is, uh, I think, you know, for most defendants, parties on the receiving end of claims is perceived as much more costly and less efficient and interesting. And, okay. and Taking too much time, so I think the though in the Supreme Court, the the idea of handing down a decision that um, basically terminates this entire this agency is going to give the justices pause. and And my sense is that they're going to try to find a way to correct it or to find that it was justified and can continue to exist. Because uh, eliminating the PTAB, it's a big deal. There's no question about it. So uh, that's going to be a, a weighty decision for them to to make.
1: Fingers crossed, because I, I mean, well, the USPTO is a hugely influential in the, the global IP scene. We don't really one that's destabilized, I guess. But I was hearing also the USPTO has been had some good initiatives in relation to the pandemic situation in terms of kind of you know, providing some solutions.
2: Yes, I believe those have expired at this point in time, but there was a period in which patent owners or applicants who Missed a deadline due to uh, the effects of the pandemic could obtain free relief. I only had to invoke that once, I believe, for a client. Most companies seem to have adapted pretty quickly, but yes, they did offer some relief. Uh, that was in the March, April, June timeframe, and of course, they've they've turned around and just raised a bunch of fees effective October the second. So they they give it and they take it away.
1: <laughs> and I guess you guys have got an exciting election. Coming up, what might the which can go two ways, or what might the impact be of the election? Or Do you think it'll be really neutral on the IP world? For the listeners, I've
2: got him thinking here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's head, head scratching and all sorts going on.
2: Normally, a, a change in administration does result in a change of the USPTO director, who is a political appointee. But sometimes that transition can take six, eight, nine months. Uh, I think uh, Michelle Lee who was director of the USPTO under President Obama, uh, hung in there for nine or 10 months uh, before uh, the Trump administration uh, found a replacement. So I don't think it'll be an immediate change. I think the Democratic Party is viewed as somewhat less pro-patent. So it, it's possible there could be some policy changes there. Uh, I, I don't think either candidate has really made uh, IP a significant issue, except for except as it relates to, uh, say, competitiveness with China for the Trump administration. That's been a major issue, and the, the perception of Chinese theft of IP uh, has been a significant initiative. Uh, there's there's been real criminal trade secrets prosecutions in the past year year and a half. Uh, several headline stories about that. So I think perhaps the major change, uh, if the if the next president is Joe Biden, um, we'll be on the China relationship. And um, we're, we're probably going to
1: move off the, the hard IP soonish. But um, I suppose one one final question is that I think the USPTO has been very active in kind of, well, it used to be called global harmonization. I don't think that's happening per se, but certainly global cooperation. Is it likely that I think the USPTO, whichever way, is going to continue to be pretty active on the global front?
2: Yes, I don't think we're turning back from that at all. Uh, it, it's very clear that that leads to efficiencies in office processing. You know, even at the the, the lowest level in terms of information exchange and document access and file access, uh, I think that's been good for applicants, and that applicants and owners want it. So yes, I I expect that to continue. Good good.
1: Lee, no, you're on mute, mate. <laughs> Keep it in, Fran. He's on mute again. Keep it's, it in. It's because I've been clearing my throat for ages, so um, <laughs> I
0: thought I'd better knock myself out for a minute. Fran just asked me if I'm all right in the chat. I'm absolutely cream crackers. <laughs> I'm struggling, struggling. I'm looking at my face thinking, are those really bags under my eyes? Can I come in from a, my perspective on AI for a bit? Is that OK? So it's not, it's not an IP question, Chris, but it's just picking your brains about what AI might mean for us. So just for a little bit of context, I'm not a patent attorney. I'm not a legal professional. I'm SIPA's chief exec. And I think I've got that gig because I'm an educationalist mainly. And I've got a big, big interest in emerging tech, AI, robotics, material science, internet, internet of things, that sort of stuff. And the impact that they'll have on the world of work, but not just on the world of work, but also the the world of professional bodies and professional associations, so organisations like and uh, Bizarrely, I found myself once speaking at a um, parliamentary select committee on it where I was held up as an expert. I'm not. But at, at that, that was five years ago. And at that forum, I posed a question that was actually originally set by a guy called Stowe Boyd, who's a futurist in the States. And he said, the central question of 2025 will be, what are people for in a world that does not need their labour? And we're only a minority and needed to guide the bot-based economy. Is that where we're headed? Is that where AI
2: takes us? I hope not. Personal interactions are just incredibly important and, and what are what make us human. I think it's going to be a freeing effect, Lee, rather than one that that sort of enslaves us in that vision. I think there'll be limits on what machines can accomplish. Even today, the technology is widely viewed as having some significant imperfections. And there are human capabilities that it, it seems almost impossible to think of machines as capable of replacing. So I, I'm an optimist. I see it as freeing us to do other things, perhaps contributing to world development in the third world and other places, adding efficiency to some processes. Uh, but no, I I think uh, in some sectors there's been a pushback against the expanded use of it. Things like the maker movement. Here, where people want to make things with their hands, uh, get involved with the trades, are you know continuing to get widespread attention. So I'm not uh, I'm not nearly as pessimistic as all that. But fascinating question. We've got to keep asking and, and evaluating.
0: Yeah, can I just develop it a little bit further, and then I'll I'll, I'll move back to Gwillem because people are probably more interested in the hard IP stuff. So I'm often asked, um, what does it mean for professionalism and professional identity? And that's not just the professional identity of patent attorneys, but I speak at conferences where it's about accountancy and you know various other professional worlds. And I, I was quite taken by what happened in the world of chess. I'm not a chess player, but when I was doing a little bit of research on kind of AI origins and its impact on the world, I was quite taken by the fact that uh, when Kasparov lost to Deep Blue, he didn't retreat into a state of despair or anything like that. He was one of the founders of a new form of chess, freestyle chess, where players can be human, they can be machine, or they can be a combination of the two. And he coined the term centaur for the combination of the two. And I've kind of developed this theory that the profession of the future is a centaur. It's it's someone who embraces AI to the degree where they're performing as kind of half a human and half artificial intelligence. That doesn't mean there's been some kind of mechanical or digital digital melding of the two, but just that it's someone who embraces AI and makes it work for them.
2: Agree. We're doing that in my firm, in the patent practice, and I think uh, successful patent attorneys in the future will have to adopt that approach. Uh, two examples. We use AI-based tools to scan and parse incoming examining actions from the USPTO and to break them up into uh, a template that we can use for response. These tools can even uh, do things like download copies of all of the prior art references that the examiner relied on uh, with no human intervention. So office action, examining action processing is one area where we're seeing the significant benefit to automation. Uh, The second is analytics. As patent uh, portfolios grow larger, clients want to know what they have how it aligns with their business, how it aligns with the business of competitors uh, and other extraction of value from the, the data that it represents their portfolio. And so we're using uh, AI-based tools to assess a technological fit between a large portfolio and company technical areas and also compare it to competitors. I think those two areas, examining action processing and analytics to Reveal value in the portfolio that clients can make decisions based on are going to be essential tools for patent attorneys in the twenty first century.
1: Fascinating. That is amazing. I think the first one is is kind of an expert support system kind of thing. Is um, I can see see real strengths for that. And I have to say, I it occurred to me that if there's one area where human brains really can't actually do it, it's when you've got a multi patent portfolio. I, I view each patent claim as a multidimensional element, And when you have hundreds of patent claims and you're trying to work your way through what it all means, I just don't think the human brain's up to it. I mean, training a machine to even show that to humans um, is
2: is a challenge, but it, I guess it, it has to be the way forward in that area. Indeed, but returning to the Centaur concept, uh, these tools are only as good as the input that's provided to them. And so right. there's a key human contribution in adding or enriching the data that goes into the tools. An example might be tagging each individual patent asset with a relationship to a a product area, service area, or competitive product or service area. Unless you have every line item in the patent portfolio tagged with what technology it relates to, it's really hard for the analytics tools to provide good assessment of what you have. Yes, you can rely on things like the international classification system, and there are tools that will do that. So uh, they look at all of your published patent assets, they pull the international classification that's been assigned by the agency to that filing, and they analyze a technical fit to you or your competitors based on that. But those are really generic tags that uh, have been developed on an international basis, and they don't always match. What the business leaders think of as their products or services, so there's an incredibly valuable human component there in in tagging the data, interpreting it, and and matching the output of the tools to to what the business leaders really want to communicate about.
1: And uh, which is reassuring. I think um, it's a long time before the core competencies are replaced, but yeah, I think managing that that volume is in, it can make a huge difference. Um, We promised a bit of future gazing. We've done a little bit anyway. And we've talked about um, the the pro-patent, anti-patent case, as it were, as as I characterise it going on at the moment, the PTAB business. Um, I've heard some talk about a business starting to reassess how they use IP, not the value of IP, but maybe being a little bit cleverer. About how they 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 use it, uh, I look at I look at the u s usually as the first place that comes out with kind of the next the next big thing um in these areas. What is the mood in the u s. about patenting going forward? Are we seeing reductions, increases,
2: different uses, new strategies? Generally positive, I believe there was a pause in March, April, May as companies had to stop and assess what the pandemic meant to their uh, income and expense lines. Uh, But I've seen a um, a resurgence of interest, larger numbers of cases being approved in the third and fourth quarters of 2020 to to be drafted and filed. I will say this, I think there, in part because of generational change and in part because of the pandemic, uh, the social aspect of IP has really come to the forefront in the past six months. You know, academics are asking questions like, if patents are going to cover the COVID-19 vaccine, what obligation do industrial producers of the vaccine or the owners of those patents have to society at large in terms of drug pricing, in terms of enforcement? So I think we're going to see that question asked more and more in the future. Yes, you can get the IP, but do you have an obligation to society uh, to to control how you uh, enforce it, or even in some cases, to make it freely available to others. That's a debate that's going to be ongoing and and people are not going to stop asking that question. Now, on the flip side of that, I can report that U.S. litigation activity has increased recently and has concentrated in in particular places. Your listeners probably are familiar with the uh, state of Texas As a frequent site of patent litigation, the most recent data that we've seen uh, indicates that over 50% of all patent litigation filed in the U.S. now is filed either in the Eastern District of Texas or the Western District of Texas. And something like two-thirds of all infringement cases now are brought by non-practicing entities, what some people call trolls. So we have this sort of concentration of litigation in one sector, the NPEs, and the geographic concentration of it in Texas. Uh, and that's that's what we're, we're gonna have for the next couple of years, I think. That's
1: re- generally reassuring. Um, obviously, the ethical issues around patents have really come to the fore uh, recently. That's been interesting to watch, but I think also interesting to watch is how, certainly as far as the pandemic goes, not, not talking about MPEs, but talking as far as the pandemic goes, quite a good response, I think, from the, the, the innovating community, recognizing that for a while, patents are a slightly different reason.
2: They've adapted. I think in, to some extent, the, the cycle time is a little bit longer for uh, identifying an idea, approving it, getting it disclosed, drafted, and filed. Um, I, my sense is that with sustained work-at-home conditions, that people are slightly less productive. And I think we see that in the time it takes to schedule a meeting, uh, the time it takes to get revisions back on drafts, things like that. I, I see just a little bit of a stretch out on that. So I think that's going to be challenging to, to companies that want to build their portfolios is, is to just squeeze productivity out of people when they're you know, living in unpleasant conditions.
0: Chris, they say the mark of a great podcast is to always leave your audience wanting more. So, um, so I think we're going to have to draw it to a close there because we've run to time, but I'm, I'm conscious there's so much more we can talk about. So will
2: you promise to come back? I promise. I hope in person. <laughs> um, I've got, I've got lots of personal reasons to be in the UK, but a further invitation is welcome. Uh, and, uh it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I, I
0: know we've got, um, we've got a couple of podcasts lined up that are, um, around technology and AI. And I think, I think what we'll do, if it's okay with you we well, we'll assimilate lots of, um, stuff from those podcasts nice. and maybe
2: try and assemble a little panel of experts for a future session. That would be great. Just don't use an AI tool to do the assembly. (laughs) (laughs) And I won't
0: dress up as a centaur, I promise. (laughs) Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
2: For me as well. Best to you both.